We must save the Titan on Netflix. It's good art. It transmits ideas and it holds something that I think can be potentially good for the future of the art form of movie making as a literary form. In this multi-part series, I'm going to discuss and show you why this is good, maybe even great movie and very good literary art, that there are a lot of elements in it. That's good. Now, the Titan you probably have not heard of. And if you're you know, only mildly interested in movies, stick around for a second. I'm going to make an argument in this part one that movies in general are, and, and art in general, or, or, movies in specific and art in general, is the most important field in the world because it is a transmitter of ideas. And science fiction in particular is very important because we live in a science fiction world. We live in a world not just of the technology, which is usually what it's talked about, but the ideas, the good and the bad ideas literally shape our worldview and make us effectively uh, do political campaigns and, and vote for certain types of ideas in the political and our cultural landscape that is directly influenced by science fiction of the last 200 years and really even older than that. So we're going to talk about a lot and how this movie fits in thematically settings wise um it it has characterization that is actually more complex than what a lot of people say people who critics lambasted this movie and i'll talk about what the movie is this this uh, premise of the movie in a second but just to give you an idea critics and audiences lambasted this movie it got a 19% on from critics and a 15% from the audience. And I'm going to say that they're both way off. And here's one thing I want to say, <clears throat> excuse me, about critics. I think this is very important. A lot of us who are moviegoers and enjoy movies, we may say something like, um, you know, I'm not going to ignore, I'm going to ignore the critics and listen to the audience. And I understand that sentiment. I do that often. I, I recommend just often trying to ignore generally both. But this I find fascinating is that this, I'm going to make an objective argument that not my feeling that this is a great work of art, that it is very, I'm going to give you in this, if you stick around for the multi-part, there's a lot of stuff going on way better than what's going on in these criticisms. These people are buffoons. They have no idea what they're talking about. I've read some of the things and it is really sad that they're missing that, you know, we have, it doesn't, it seems like we have no great critics that have any concept of what art is. Uh, and, and what movies are as an art. Like, it's pretty terrible. But one thing about critics and what critics should be doing, this is one of the roles of a critic. This is what a critic should be doing. It's not simply trying to come up with, you know, clever ways of bashing a film, but it is actually to teach you to understand a film. It's Critics have always been and should always be taste makers. Not, you know, making fun of necessarily. Now, if something's really bad, there's a great tradition in criticism of lambasting the buffoonish you know, uh, artist who thinks that he's better than he is. But really, critics should be educators in a certain sense. They should be showing people, here's a great work of art, here's how to appreciate it. What, you know, let's go through this and let me, show, let me teach you how to understand 
this kind of thing. You know, and there's a rich tradition in poetry, for instance, of critics through their analysis and through their description of a poem bringing light, enlightenment and understanding to an audience. And the fact that the audience doesn't understand this great work of art, which we're going to talk about, and I'm going to give you a little bit of hints and, and uh, things to look at in part one so you can see that. So part one is going to be aimed at helping you see a co- just a couple clues before you watch this grand total of 90-minute film and why it's good and, and you know how every single element and every single shot is critical is very carefully chosen and very important to the setting the theme the plot the characters and the imagery that harkens back thousands of years into fairy tale land so this is a very very important um you know so this is a very very well done film for a variety of reasons so that that's what part 1 is going to be about if you're listening, so I'm going to do this on a podcast. I'm going to put this video on Facebook, on the Troubadour Magazine page, at Troubadour Mag um, on Facebook. I'm also going to put it on YouTube. Um, I'll put it under my personal YouTube account, Kirk Barbera, uh, Kirk J. Barbera. Or you could just go to, you know, make it easy for yourself, go to TroubadourMag.com, and that's the central location for all of these things that I'm going to talk about. But part one is fundamentally I'm going to show a couple clips and I'm going to uh, talk about two quick things. One is going to be counterproductive, or excuse me, counterintuitive, not counterproductive, counterintuitive. And that is the idea that this piece is um, has as its core premise the same premise that most science fiction uh, stories have to this day that harkens back hundreds and, and hundreds of years into the origins of science fiction to a large degree. And that has literally shaped the way that people today think about the actual environment that we live in. So there's a, a, an environmentalist trope or idea that is constantly, you know, um, uh, showed, shown in science fiction stories. It's one that philosophically I disagree with. But it, nevertheless, it forms the premise and the, the core of the, the idea behind this story. And here, this is important, but it does not take away from the greatness of this art. And I want to show you how to understand the artwork as opposed to the, um, you know, as a, as, as in contrast to what's good in, or what's bad or good in the ideas. And I think there are some good ideas in it too, but, you know, we're going to look at, it's, it's what I call the, um, environmentalist fantasy. The, the modern environmentalist fantasy is, often put into uh, science fiction. And I think, um, or I, I know, science fiction is actually what built that fantasy that now environmentalists were on the streets waving signs and so on. They they preach it. And it all comes from, from this idea, uh, from these images that were developed by literary artists. It all comes from literature. Okay, so we're going to um, watch, a, 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 like I said, a few minutes of this. I'm going to show um, a clip and... Uh, um, about about eight minutes it's into the movie so it's very close to the beginning and you know the the story uh oh and and you don't need to have watched the movie for part one so that's why i'm breaking it up is there's going to be multi-parts and i want you hopefully i'll inspire you to watch it if not we're going to do an analysis that's deeper later and there will be a lot of spoilers this is going to have very this part one will have very few spoilers you know the general premise of this story if you haven't heard of it, which you probably haven't, is the um, idea that the there's a bleak future. It's in the the world is in 2048, 
It takes this world takes place in 2048, and it's a very bleak future. There's nuclear war that's actually been happening. So there's actual nuclear war. So this isn't you know the idea that there's maybe a nuclear war in the future. That there's a you know in the Cold War era of the you know 50s, 60s, and so on. There is a fear of nuclear war. There's actually nuclear war. Like bombs have dropped. Um, there's there's been actual loss of resources. So all that fear that we have of uh, resources running out has actually happened now in 2048, and a, and a list litany of other things. And um, Sam Worthington's character Rick and his wife and kid go to this um, area, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. I don't want to you know explain too much about it in order to try to solve or save the world. So that's the general premise. But what I want to show you is this scene. And how it is a kind of, um, you know, like I said, a, an environmentalist fantasy. It goes down a litany of, of, um, of problems with the world. And the difference is, you'll see, well, we'll talk about the difference. I don't want to spoil too much. But just watch it. The idea is that this is very early on in the story, and they're setting, this is setting up the premise. And then after this, we're going to talk about a couple of uh, clues to what, why there's a much deeper story going on than you will notice at first glance with this story. So if you watch this 90 minute or an hour and 37 minute movie and you're not really paying attention really to the details, to the setting, to the, to the production design, to the lighting, to the imagery, all of that plays a role very, very prominently in this story. Okay, so let's watch the scene. I won't make any comments, but I'll, I'll make a couple comments. I'm going to watch... Uh, we'll watch uh, two parts of this one scene. You'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. Let me take this off. So afterward, so you'll be able to hear it if you're on podcast and it should, I think it'll make sense. Although I do think it'll be a little bit better if um, you can, if you can watch it. Okay. If you can watch it go, it might make more sense, but if not, you know, you hear the voices, he's going to go down the litany of things and it'll, you know, play, it'll still work for you, I think. And then my description of it, I hope will suffice if you're only listening. Okay, here we go. Our population has grown out of control. Our environment is in decay. Our resources have been depleted. Wars have ravaged our planet. We are fighting over the scraps of what remains. In 10 years, half the planet will be uninhabitable. In 15 years, half the world's population will have starved to death. Time is running out. We've outgrown our home. Our children will witness the end of days. But there is one place that gives us hope. Titan, the largest moon of Saturn. The only other place in our solar system with an atmosphere, a primordial ecosystem just like Earth seconds before life was born liquid methane raining into huge oceans and lakes that we can't swim in and an atmosphere rich in nitrogen that we can't breathe too cold to exist in fiercely hostile to life as we know it beyond the reach 
of space science, but not modern genetics. No longer trying to reshape planets in our image, but evolving humanity into the stars. Imagine, with a few minor enhancements, you could breathe the air, swim in the waters, and survive the cold. What if Titan could become our home? Okay, so before we, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you what this guy asks. This is important, actually, or I think kind of funny, is even though it's not supposed to be funny in the show, but I think it's pretty hilarious. But you'll notice if you've watched sci-fi movies before, which I know you have because they're the most popular movies on the planet. If you do a list, if you do a Google search of the top 20 grossing movies of all time, um, I think something like more than half of them are science fiction of some major sort or another. You know, the, the two exceptions are something like the Titanic or, or one of some Titanic and some other thing. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but most of them are science fiction. And Titanic, by the way, is done by the same guy who uh, did Avatar, which is also on that list. So it's very you know, James Cameron, who's an environmentalist. And I think there's there's a, a strain that's very interesting to look at the most popular films of all time, grossing wise, and it, the the worldview that we have today. But you'll notice how this guy, the scientist up here, and this is this um I think his name is Corrington. They only say his name like once, which we're going to talk. I think once, maybe twice, but. And they, um, you know, refer to him usually as doctor or something, which is very important, actually, in a literary, if you know the literary tradition of Wells and Hawthorne and um, even Shelley, you'll notice there's a there's a relevance to that kind of use of, you know, the cliche doctor, or we might have another name for him as a scientist, as a certain type of scientist, which we'll talk about in future, future episodes, future parts. But what what I wanted to convey and why this is so important, not just as artwork, or not just as like something to sit on your couch and, and veg out and watch, but this is actually the world we live in, in terms of the human perspective. So what he was talking about is a list of what environmentalists have talked about for 50 years. And they're, they're talk, when they talk about it, this goes back to, you know, you can go to the 50s, 60s, and they talk about, you know, he, the first thing he mentioned was the population is going, overgrowing. And that's actually been talked about for 100 years or more than 100 years. And the, the idea that we're going to overgrow, we're, gonna, we're growing so fast, you know, this has happened since the Industrial Revolution, we're going to grow so fast, we're not going to be able to, to feed everybody. The exact opposite has happened. And all these predictions have gone wrong every single time for hundreds of years. And they always say, you know, like in 20, 30 years, we're not, and Paul Ehrlich said this in like the sixties. Uh, and he's one of the most famous environmentalists. He's kind of sparked the modern environmentalist movement, movement along with Rachel Carson. He said, we're going to starve the whole society. You're going to have like billions of people dying by the year 2000. The complete opposite happened. We were able to gen genetically modify food and so on and so forth. So like, you know, I call, I call this the the fantasy of environmentalists today. It's really, you know, to be a little more crude, it's more like the wet dream. I mean, this is something that they like salivate over. This idea that, you know, their their fears that they've been telling everybody, you have to do what we say. You know, you have to do cap and trade. You have to do this political movement. Whatever your politics are, just pay attention to what they're saying is shaped by this idea that this is reality. 
So in their minds and in the minds of so many people, this is literally what the world looks like today. Now, the reality is that if you travel the world, if you look around, you know, not barring what you might see on news, generally speaking, or, or in, in every sense of the word, or in every sense of the idea, human civilization, humanity, people are doing way better. There's way more clean water. There's way better food, more access to food. People are able to, you know, billions of people are being lifted out of poverty like never before in the history of humanity. And they're being able to feed themselves and live lives that are not just, you know, 20, 30 years in the muck before they die of a disease that we're, we're, we are eradicating diseases. So the point is that this is a kind of fantasy land that has been the strain of science fiction for 150 years. I mean, really, you can, you know, you can talk in a sense, we're going to talk about how it harkens back to, um, the Bible, Garden of Eden, which is this idea that there's a pristine, you know, planet that's unable to be harmed, that's transmitted by Dante, that's transmitted most powerfully in English, I think, today by Milton's Paradise Lost. And then that's pushed from that world into science fiction. The first science fiction story is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which this has, this movie has strong elements of, and it's beautifully well done in the Frankenstein tradition. It's well done in that certain literary tradition, which we're going to talk more about in the future, in the future parts of this, of this show. So I just want to, you know, show you that art is not something that just is kind of a casual thing that we, we think about. It is actually shaping the way that we think about the story, about our world that we live in today. And the decisions we make politically, you know, even if you, your decision, you know, people's decision to buy an electric car versus like a gas guzzling one is shaped by this idea that goes unquestioned that the earth is this thing that's perfectly shaped and designed for us. And we are screwing it up versus, and this is Elon Musk, by the way. And if you look at what Jeff Bezos says, he has the opposite view. He says, you know, that basically we need to you know, change the world to make, you know, to, to, that we can change the world for the better and that we are changing the world for the better. It's, it's kind of a battle of two ideas. And one idea is the most prominent by far. It's in, in science classes. It's in, ed, you know, education everywhere. Everyone says this. It's in movies. All the top grossing films of all have these kind of imagery, which we're going to talk about in the future. One way to look at it is, um, called the Eden complex. And there's going to be six elements we're going to be talking about. And these elements are ingrained in the story. So it's, it's, it's a subsection that people don't even think about. It's literally the images you're seeing. Now, th this is explicit ideology here, but that's not going to be discussed with outside of this, this part here very much within the story. The assumption, you know, you'll see this all the time in science fiction movies where it begins with the world is ending, we've done everything bad, now what are we going to do? Oh, we have to have this new vaccine, we have to go to Mars, we have to go to interstellar space, we have to go because the world is coming to an end because this perfect, pristine thing has been fucked up by us. <laughs> and that's the general premise. That is, that again, harkens back to Christian ideology of the Garden of Eden, that God gave us this perfect, pristine planet or, or area, this garden, and then we're screwing it up. It's our job. Even comedians like Louis C.K., you hear this in television all the time, that we are, you know, he said, Louis C.K. said something like, hey, we have, um, you know, like if, if uh, aliens came down here, what they would say is, what the hell are you doing? You had this beautiful thing and you're building all this stuff and you're drilling into it. Like he assumes that all that stuff's evil 
And why does he assume it? Science fiction. 100%. Like, I'm, I'm 100% convinced. I'd love to hear if you disagree with me. Science fiction is the greatest transmitter of this idea in the history of the planet, or of any idea, but of, of the history of the planet. And that's the role of art. The role of art is to transmit ideas and to concretize them, to give you images. So if you were watching and not just listening, not only did you hear what he said, but you saw images of sunken cities, you know, people in, in terror. And you, earlier in the movie that we didn't watch, there's nuclear war. L.A. is uninhabitable is the first, you know, image of the world that we see. So again, this is an environmentalist wet dream. This is what they want. If you ever listen to environmentalists, they would love to live in this world, so now we can do something, right? And that's what the premise of this story is. Okay, so now that I hope I've convinced you that this is real-world implications of these stories, hearkening back to the the Bible, you know, Milton and um, Paradise Lost, what is, why did we lose it? And there's a whole bunch of questions about that. And that is, you know, that forms the premise of the Titan. Now, I don't agree with, obviously you could tell I don't agree with that premise, but this is still good art. And that's why I hope you'll just um, stick around for the future parts of this. I'm, what I'm going to show you quickly are two things I want you to, to pay attention to. The first is the imagery of the ocean. And, you know, we're, I'm going to kind of talk you through a little bit of the imagery that we're seeing at the beginning. <clears throat> and then something that is a dialogue that we think of as just, you know, pass away exposition that we would, most of us would, you know, maybe be making popcorn still not paying attention to. And, and yet it holds the whole premise of what is called the edible structure of conflict. So, you know, one of the criticisms that this got is that there was no conflict. But again, I think what's sad is that critics seem to only have watched movies for 10 years, have never read a fucking book have never, you know, have no idea about the history of conflicts and the history of literature. And so they're trying to say that this thing has nothing to it. And yet it fits perfectly into the tradition of science fiction, which all, you know, Minority Report, you probably have seen that, or Avatar. They they all have this Oedipal structure, and that's the basic conflict. And most people misidentify the conflict. I have no idea. They think it's, oh, the blue man versus the white man, you know, evil thing. And yeah, that's, that's part of it. But you could also have that bland of a, a conflict here. But there's also a deeper conflict that, that I think also re- resonates with real world. And that's the whole, um, point of the, the, what, what I'm hoping you're, you're going to get out of this. Okay. So we're going to watch a little bit of a, uh, the beginning. So I'm going to go backwards, actually. And the purpose is just to help to hopefully show you what the conflict is. So you'll go and watch it and then you'll watch part two of my conversation where I'm going to go into the characters. We're going to talk about the depths that's going on that you might miss. And we're going to again hearken back to the six, particularly what I'm going to focus on in a future episode are the six imagery uh, elements of the garden or the Eden complex. And we're going to talk about, you know, how this is a, a, a Mary Shelley Frankenstein, that this has a lot to do with uh, a rich tradition that, that of literature that harkens back to uh, medieval times and Gothic literature in the 16th and 17th century, 
moving into Hawthorne and Mary Shelley and, and, and going into Wells. This has a very strong H.G. Wellsian structure to it and an element. And I would say that's the biggest element in this story. And, you know, again, I want to stress that this is not just a literary discussion for the sake of literary discussion. This has real world implication, which is why I was showing you that scene of the, the, um, environmentalist wet dream. Because our whole, like, whatever you view of the environment, just look around. Why does everybody agree exactly on the same thing? And that's no different than if you were to go into 13th century Italy and everyone had the same exact ideas about religion. And it's just like, that should, you know, Mark Twain, this idea that when you are on the side of everyone, that you should check your primate or think, you know, um, start thinking about something different. I don't remember the quote exactly. But anyway, so let's watch these scenes and let's, let's kind of get into it and see what, uh, See what's going on here. I'm going to go back a little bit. Now, um, if you're not watching, if you're listening, you'll notice um, that this is a, a, we're getting water. Now, we don't know if this is a lake, a river, an ocean, but we're getting dark images of water. Now, if you watch science fiction movies, this is the most common thing that you'll see, whether good or bad. But this is the setup of like images of water or frozen water, like if you want like ice, is pretty common in these uh, opening sequences while they're showing the titles. But look, this is what's really important here. And this one, and this, if you know anything about literature, which if you don't, I'm here to help you, is you'll notice something really important that I think we need to um, take into consideration when we're looking at this piece of art, this movie. So the, the camera is looking at darkened water, and now the water starts to get lighter and bluer, and then the camera's panning up, and we see an island. And it's an it's a very bleak island. There's only a few green or uh, orange dots on it, just speckled with little orange dots. But it's this black island out in the middle of the ocean. We it looks like an ocean anyway. So I think that's really important is to think about where have we seen in the history of literature an island like this in a science fiction story, and that would be, of course, the island of Doctor Moreau. So. If you've, if you have an inkling of that, even if you don't, you just, if you want, if you're watching carefully, this is not a brightly lit, you know, the, the director and the uh, cinematographer chose this darkened scene where on the left screen, it's comp almost completely black and it gets darker, darker. And then there's a little bit of, it's lightening up a little bit and you see the island is just, you know, barely lighted. And that's important because that's giving you an an emotion to feel. So even if you've never read The Island of Dr. Moreau, you should know there's something ominous going on. Why wasn't this completely brightly lit, right? Like that would be a completely different emotion. So by the way, beach imagery is always important in science fiction because most battles happen on those areas in, in science fiction. There's a, a long history of Wars being fought in these areas between the water and the land. Okay, so I'm going to fast forward, and I want to... Pockets of so this is 
the sun. As nuclear fallout over the Pacific continues to fuel sandstorms over... Wife, and, and you're, hopefully you're hearing the nuclear stuff. So we're getting an image of the wife. Her head is on the shoulder of her husband, um, who's the character's name is Rick. And that's Sam Worthington. California, the last remaining pockets of residents were evacuated by the National Guard. The federal government's already... And it says on the screen, he's holding a tablet that says, um, Los Angeles uh, declared uninhabitable. So again, this is part of the wet dream of the environmentalists, is that all their predictions that are in the future that have not happened, right? Because we live in a wonderful world where, where LA is fine, and it's actually you know less smog than in the 70s. But in this world, that sandstorms continue rolling across Southern California, and it's just the whole... It's completely like they've evacuated the whole Los Angeles. Millions of people. struggling to keep up with flash floods in Long Beach and Venice has declared Los Angeles uninhabitable. Now, so that's so one. I wanted to point out that the emotions evoked by the cinematography, the choosing cho choosing of this island, that this this character who would you know being introduced to this whole world, all of this is really well done. Right. It's showing you it's evoking certain emotions, whether you know much about science fiction or not, doesn't really matter. So, you know, it's it's obviously a military convoy. It looks or it looks it looks like a military convoy, and they're going into the island, right? They're driving into that island so that um and, and we're gonna see something important in just a second here. I'm gonna skip a little bit. Oh, so uh we missed it, but it said um NATO operating base twenty forty eight. So that's the setting is NATO operating base 2048. People got 20,000 acres of training fields. Science and technology, of course. Well, and have a super So she, this lady is describing this island. Now, this is an island that is, again, a perfect garden designed by these individuals that are living there. So we're getting the garden imagery of this, you know, beautifully working society that we have. Right. And, and that in, in literature tends to be what's called a microcosm. And what happens here is happening on the broader world. You get this with like Lord of the Flies most, you know, uh, famously. Get a cinema animal. All under NATO command. Join initiative with the Defense Science Office and the British Department of Science and Technology, of course. And to be sure, Lieutenant, we're highly classified. Communication with the outside world will be limited. No different. So that, by the way, is something that most of us would barely pay attention to. And yet it is the whole core of the freaking conflict. And now this is something that I think what, you know, when I was talking about earlier with critics, this is what critics should be pointing out to help you understand um, these movies and what's, you know, especially these visual movies. There's a, there's a visual movie in a lot of ways, uh, which movies should be visual because <laughs> they kind of use mo visuals to convey their ideas. But notice what this um, this guy, this soldier, if you're listening, it was a soldier talking to Sam Worthington. He was explaining this NATO base. So it's a NATO base, but he says it's a joint initiative with the Defense Science Office and the British Department at Science and Tech. So you have three different organizations, NATO, and then you know an initiative with the Defense Science Office, presumably of the United States, uh, and the British Department of Science and Tech, presumably of Britain. <laughs> um, and the guy is wearing a U.S. A soldier's uh, uniform. This Sam Worthington seems to be an American soldier. And of course, in that room that you saw in 
when I was showing you the earlier clip, there were a variety of flags. So, you know, it was more than one. Uh, it wasn't just Americans. This was, you know, there were, there were different countries there as well. But the reason this is the conflict is because the question is, in these types of stories, who controls paradise? Who gets to determine the future of paradise? What types of things are allowed in this, this, you know, paradise? And then that is what forms the basis of a lot of the overarching conflict that we're going to see in the story is like this conflict between these different elements that want to know what to do with paradise. And in a sense, earth is, you know, the microcosm of we've, the, the implication is, in the past, with all the things we've done in the past, we have not controlled and, and um, developed Earth properly, which is the broader paradise, right? Earth itself is the paradise. This island is just a microcosm of that broader Earth. We've screwed it up big time, right, in this story. So the question is, can we do better in this microcosm? And that's what's going to be playing out in a lot of ways. And there's going to be different ideas about how to do that. And then how to save the human race and so so forth. So the point is, and then the question is, can, can that happen? You know, who, who gets to determine? And there's a lot that goes into that. But think about when, you know, I hope you go to watch this. I'm going to end this, end this now. And there's a lot that we could keep going into. But I'll do that with the next part. We're going to go into some of the um, characters a little bit more after hopefully you've seen it. And what I hope that you see, and I hope that you, um, when you watch this, is you just try to think about that at one element. And then, you know, if you have read any of the literature, good. If not, come back and I will help to teach you a little bit more of the, the literary elements that are going on in this story. So check out the Titan with Sam Worthington. And um, I think, like I said, help me save this good, maybe even great piece of art.